morning. I have to say, I do like getting to work with my amazing wife. It's really fun. And did you notice we had a rogue drummer this morning? Um, Multi-talented curate, not for much longer, as in curate, not talented. Um, <laughs> um, we are wrapping up today this little vision series that we've been working our way through called All In. And a little bit later, uh, I'm going to be facilitating us making a response to the practical reality of what that looks like by inviting you to go all in. Uh, we're going to be giving you some forms and various things like that to fill in. But before we do that, I want to just reflect a little bit on um, one little bit more of the vision that we have as a church to uh, go all in. And that's to think a little bit, just for a few moments, about um, mission and evangelism. And I want to start by telling you about a little moment in one of my favorite films, Schindler's List. Anyone seen Schindler's List? Anyone thinking, oh, it's a long time since I've seen that. Maybe I should revisit it. It's a great, great film. If you know the film, right at the end, there's one of these beautifully moving scenes where Oscar Schindler, who has by this stage rescued around 1,100 people, mainly children and uh, women, from death in concentration camps, is honored by some of those people and others who discovered what he'd been doing. Um, the war has ended. Those people that he's liberated are set free. He then becomes a fugitive. And uh, he has this moment where, as he's honored, he just says this phrase, I could have done more. I could have done more. And he looks at his watch, this expensive watch, and he says, that's, that's two people. And all the people around him say, no, 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 you, what you did was amazing. And you'll be honored in history, and he has been, rightly. But he says, no, no, I, I could have done more. And then he looks at his beautiful car. He says, I, I didn't need that car. I could have sold that car. That's 10 people. I could have done more. I think that reflects that heart that he had, that, that he knew that his call, his life was to be spent doing what needed to be done to bring healing and wholeness to the world. And for him, that was rescuing people who shouldn't be going to those places. And so he did all he could. But his honest reflection was, I, I wish I'd been able to do more. I could have done more if only I'd sacrificed more. And I want to suggest to us this morning, and please hear me really carefully, that, um, that we can do more. We, we could do more, all saints. Like, we, we are on a journey as a church. It's a good journey. It's a great journey. God's building a beautiful church here. Uh, I was sharing something of the story uh, of All Saints uh, last weekend with people at the Newcomers Lunch, and, and Owen was hosting that, and uh, Paul Swan and I were there, and Paul, if you know, Paul was the vicar before me, and he's now one of our associate vicars, and he told a bit of the story, and then I told a bit more of the story, and then Owen told a bit of the story, and there's this sense then in that moment of like, we're just part of something that's not even closely 
not even close to being finished. Someone said to me, of, of what you see for All Saints, Rich, how far into it are we? And I said, no joke, about 3%. <laughs> they looked at me, I think, like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were exhausted. But you see, we could do more. This um, passage from Matthew, this little phrase, really, in a sense, that's quite famous, the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, is part of a wider narrative in this bit of the gospel where Jesus is trying to envision his disciples for what it means to be his people. And uh, he modeled for us, I think, what it looks like to go all in. So notice verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Verse 35. Jesus did all he could. Jesus did what he was asked to do. Jesus modeled for us faithfulness and obedience, right? We've been talking about that over the last few weeks. And there's a clue as to why he was so willing to go all in. Why did he do this? Obviously, he's God incarnate. He's the perfect human. He's living within the confines of the human um, experience, but empowered by the Spirit and without sin, and therefore able to be perfectly human and to redeem humanity through his perfect life and therefore death. But, but actually, he was a perfect human in the sense that he had emotions and a brain and, a, and eyes and ears and he tasted things and he felt things and he cried and he, he wept and he felt the pain of other people and all these other things. And so there's a clue in here as to what was motivating him. And it's verse 36. He had compassion on them. These people, wherever he went, the crowds, he he had compassion on them. This Bible is the New Living Translation, not the one you've got. It's better, I think, but we can't afford to replace all the Bibles in church. Uh, And it says this, He felt great pity for the crowds that came because their problems were so great and they didn't know where to go for help. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The response of Jesus when he sees all these people and all the problems, all their imperfection, all their challenge, robbing them of being gloriously fully alive is is to respond in compassion. So much so that he goes all in and lays down his life for them. I want to suggest to you all saints, that there's a bit of the journey we're on that we need to revisit. And it's our evangelistic, missional edge. We're quite good at lots of things, actually, and that's wonderful. But if I'm honest with you, my reflection would be, I think we've lost that edge to us as a church, that desire to share with the world what we have. And so I'm going to be thinking and praying with the team about how we adjust that. But it starts here, I think, for us. When we look out into the world, what do we see? How do we see them, it? What goes on in here? Is there a response of compassion for, 
like a passion for people, a desire to do more. You know, Jesus uses this phrase, the harvest is plentiful, because he lived in an agrarian culture and they would have understood that. And they would have understood this idea that the Lord needs to send out the workers because a landowner, a farmer, they couldn't, they couldn't bring in the harvest every year unless they brought workers in. And so often what would happen is these, these landowners would be trying to find workers because there was no guarantee that they would have enough. There was no online kind of recruitment process. There was no kind of system for ensuring that people would come and work your fields. And Jesus uses parables, doesn't he, um, about workers and how they're paid and how they're treated to talk about the kingdom of God. It was a very real life, normal story. And so what he's trying to say is, guys, in the same way that a landowner might be looking out over their fields and thinking, oh my goodness, how on earth are we going to reap this harvest? I'm telling you that God is looking out over the whole world and he's saying, how are we going to gather in the people, the lost sheep, into this new thing called the kingdom of God that I'm here to embody, which I'm in trusting to you and so he says the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few because that was always the case and nothing's really changed the harvest is plentiful the workers are few verse 36 is key for us understanding how we play our part so just pause for a moment and think about all the people you know And how many of them know Jesus? Does that bother you? Does it shape your praying? We talk, don't we, about in Christian language, Christianese, Christian world, we talk about being saved, right? And it's a cliched, unhelpful phrase these days because people think we mean something and we used to mean, you know, save from hell and go to heaven when you die. The, the thing is, hopefully you've discovered the big expansive vision of the kingdom that Jesus articulates. Our theology here is as expansive as we possibly can make it. And our vision for what it means to be saved is rooted in the scriptures and it's rooted in this Hebrew word. Can anyone remember what it is for salvation? Anyone remember? It begins with Y. Yasha. Yasha. This incredible word that means wide open space. So we believe here that Jesus properly understood says I've come to save you and that means to be saved from sin and death for wholeness and life and to come into living relationship with Jesus through the spirit and to discover the loving father and to inherit everything that we're created for is not just something that happens when we die it happens the moment we recognize our need of that and we say yes to Jesus Christ and he invites us into something to to leave something behind and, and take something up And that's what we mean when we talk about saving the world, we're talking about saving the world from itself, from this spiral of sin and therefore death, of destruction and chaos and disease and everything that goes wrong, and invite people into the redemptive work of Jesus Christ by his spirit through the church today here on earth. That's what we mean. Yasha. 
And so when I say the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, I don't want you to suddenly hear I'm kind of going old school and saying, hey, find some tracts and a megaphone and go and hassle people on the high street tomorrow morning. I'm not talking about that. That doesn't work. What I'm saying is, do we see that our calling as the church is to share that which we have with the world? To go and invite them to discover the wide open spaces of salvation. That's what it means to bring the harvest in, I think. So Kirk Cameron, who's an American theologian, he puts it like this. If you had the cure to cancer, wouldn't you share it? You have the cure to death. Get out there and share it. Tom was talking brilliantly, wasn't he, about trying to bring technology to bear on diabetes. And yet what we have in the church because of our faith in Christ and the power of the Spirit is life in all its fullness. New creation life breaking into this world, this decaying old world through us. It's incredible. And, and the call is to share that. Freely we receive, freely we give. Because the people walking in darkness haven't seen a great light. The light shines and the darkness will not overcome it, but they haven't seen it. Because the way people see the light is when they see it reflected in and through us. That's how they see it. So pause for a moment again. Just think, who, who is the primary reason why you now follow Jesus? Almost certainly, if you stop and think long enough, there'll be one person, maybe more, that ultimately you can thank one day. Like occasionally I meet people and I say, how did you come to be a Christian? And they'll say, well, I was minding my own business and then this angel turned up in the middle of my room in the middle of the night. And if you've ever met an angel, you don't, you know, you're either like, you've either had too much to drink and it wasn't really, or it really was. There are some people who've had those experiences, but most people are following Jesus because someone introduced them. They saw the light in somebody. I was chatting to someone only last week who was at church in the evening who's not a Christian, and I said, why are you here then? She said, well, because I like my friends who come here. I, I like being with them. They, they make me feel good. I was like, well, that's the presence of God. She's like, oh, right, okay. So take my moment. So I want to suggest to you, friends, that as well as continuing to do the things we do to care for people, food bank, Christians Against Poverty, Home for Good, street pastors, all the stuff that the PCC does on your behalf to fund local and national and international mission, all of which is great, we also need to get back to being people who are willing and up for and motivated in sharing our faith, telling people about Jesus. And here's the deal. We can do loads of things centrally. We can run courses. We can create events. We can invite people to invite people. We can say to you, bring your friends. 
But unless you actually, Monday through Sunday, are doing life with people out there in such a way that they see your light and they know why you have that particular light because you've actually had the guts to tell them a little bit about your faith, then, then that's not, not going to happen. So we've got Christmas coming up. I don't want to know how many days left till Christmas. Don't tell me. I'm in denial. Um, but we had a Christmas planning meeting last week. We were thinking about our Christmas gatherings. And they are designed in such a way that you should have confidence to bring your friends to come and experience afresh what Christmas is all about. Here's what we know from the data. Is that if you ask your friends to come to a Christmas carol service, 90-something percent of people always say yes. Who does not want to sing a few carols, eat a mince pie, have some mulled wine at Christmas? It's all part of our tradition, right? So you get them in the building, we'll tell them about Jesus. Deal? Here's the thing. I'm going to be really blunt. I've said that every year for years. And then every Christmas carol service, I look out, and I'm really disappointed. Because... Because of the way I'm wired, in my mind, there will be thousands of people trying to get in because <laughs> you've all done such a good job of inviting people. And some of you do, and then they don't want to come, I understand that. Some of you have said, oh, they let me down at the last minute. But I also know that probably some of us, if we're honest, don't actually do it. So I'm raising the bar. I'm challenging us this morning. This is off my notes, so you can sue me later. Because it really matters. I'm not, I'm not particularly, I don't have a theological framework where I'm like, oh my goodness, we've got to rescue people from the fires of hell at the end of their life. That's a whole other conversation. What I'm interested in is helping people discover life in all its fullness now. I want people to find the story that we're in and discover it for themselves and say yes to it. That's what I want. I want people to have hope for today as well as for tomorrow. It matters to me because people are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. And the only thing that's stopping them from having a different life is in this encounter with Jesus that they need. We owe the church, the church owes the world an encounter with Jesus. It owes it. So, so what I'm saying is we can do all the right things centrally. We can program church in the right kind of way. And we need to keep revisiting that. But at the end of the day, it's down to you and me individually beyond here. It really is. And so Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, and that's verse 37. There are 6.3 billion people on earth, and rough estimates say that about 2.2 billion of them know Jesus. So by my maths, that leaves about 4 billion. So we've got some work to do. Now that's daunting, isn't it? That's overwhelming. So I think, okay, let's scale it down. How many people live in Worcester? Anyone want to hazard a guess? It's 100,000. I like that number because I can do the maths now. I'm like, yes. Percentages, year five. That's about as far as my maths goes. Uh, there are 100,000 people in Worcester. We reckon, because I've asked the church leaders, we've had this conversation, we reckon optimistically, like with super gracious definitions of church involvement, like super, let's encourage the Anglican church, uh, there are 3,000 people in a church once a month in this city. That's optimistic. So 97,000 people 
are like sheep without a shepherd. And I'm still old school enough as an orthodox evangelical Christian to believe that the only way for them to experience Yasha, what God created them to be in the first place, what God created them to have and to know, is in and through the person of Jesus Christ. I don't think there's any other way. I'll say as it is. I'm happy to be shot down later. Just buy me a beer first. So by my reckoning, that means we need 500 churches like ours, if we're going to go roughly on this sort of size, which is why I'm interested in church planting. And I said to someone recently, I would love us to plant 20 churches over the next 20 years. They looked at me like I was mad, but that's not even enough. The harvest is plentiful. The work is a few. What I'm asking is, will you be one of those people that's gutsy enough to help me do something about it? Verse 38 is interesting, isn't it? Because what you're expecting Jesus to say to the disciples is, so get out of here. Come on. You know enough already. Off you go. But he doesn't say that, does he? Notice what it says in verse 38. It says, pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest would send the workers. He doesn't send them. He says pray. Now, if you know anything about church history, they did actually realize quite quickly that they were to be the answer to that prayer themselves. But there's a nuance in this that's really important. There's a reason why I think, well, two reasons why Jesus says this. Number one, the reality is that you and I as all saints, we cannot, between us, see 97,000 people come to faith. I mean, unless there's like revival, which I pray for every day. So that would be great, wouldn't it? But can you imagine the headache? Imagine where, where would you park? Like on a Sunday morning. Like you'd actually have to get here early to get a seat. Imagine, imagine the coffee we'd have to make. I mean, it'd be really ridiculous. Even if all the churches have a crack at it, we can't do it. So before we try and do our bit, we have to pray for the big picture. That's why he said that. So number one, we'll come to this in a moment, but number one, the first thing to notice is that their first response is, is to pray, and then it's to go. Because as you pray for the problem or the, the challenge or the opportunity or the reality, however lang- whatever language you want to put to it, what starts to happen is you become aware, I think, of, okay, and now what's my personal response to this? And the reason why I want to encourage you in a moment to just pause and think and pray is that often what happens is, uh, if we rely on our own understanding, we, we will either ass- we'll assume all sorts of things of people as to where they're at. And I want to say to you, when you ask God to show you who from among the people in your world should you be praying for and perhaps inviting and thinking about and having the guts to sort of share your faith with... Uh, God will show you somebody who you might think, really? They've never expressed any interest whatsoever. They've always been really dismissive or whatever it is. But actually, that's because God knows the state of someone's hearts and we don't. So some of you will know that um, on the first Wednesday of every month, I go out uh, down the tithing with all the local dads to drink beer and occasionally we go for a curry. And it's basically a group of friends um, because I like being around people like that. And, um, but what happens is... 
all, every single month on the way back up the tithing to our house in Barbourne, one or another of them, probably because they've had one beer more than they should, will start to have a conversation with me about what's really going on deep in here. And if I was to, to assume where they're at based on what they're like the rest of the time, I would write them off and say, then there's no way. But I know. And so I'm praying for them. Because I listen to them, and these are all great guys. But I think, imagine if you discovered the kingdom of God. Imagine if you took everything you're good at and all your gifts and all your talents and all your passions and you applied those to the work of the kingdom. You would come alive more fully, but the world would be better. And so I have enough confidence to believe that all of them at some point could encounter Jesus. Albert Moeller, who's a conservative evangelical, I guess, he... um, he puts it like this. He says, at the end of the day, the greatest, sorry, the biggest obstacle to evangelism is Christians who don't share the gospel. <laughs> We're great at coming up with excuses. It is really hard in our post-Christian culture to be a, 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 an orthodox Christian. I understand that. And we'll do some work on that next year. But the reality is that we owe the world an encounter with Jesus. And actually, most of us assume that people aren't really up for it, but actually they are. They just don't always know what they're up for or why. And usually what happens is they, the conversation I often have goes like this, and people introduce me to their friend because I'm the vicar, so they think, that's right, he knows what to say. And I've probably got a bit more experience, but the conversation usually goes a bit like this. Um, yeah, it's either, oh, I wish I could have the faith you've got. Do you ever hear that? Oh, I wish I had your faith. To which the answer is, well, you can. <laughs> This is a gift. Uh, the other way it goes is, um, oh, I, I just can't believe in, in God. And I say, which God? What, 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 what do you struggle with? And 90% of the time I'm like, yeah, me too. I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> because the God they think that we're offering them isn't the God that we know and we've done a bad job at teaching and explaining. And so before too long I leave them going, so, well, you know, now what? <laughs> and, and then they're like, hmm. And at that point, I just leave them because it's, you know, I'm not going to manipulate the situation. I say that to encourage you because if we're just real and honest and we just let our light shine and we invite people into our world and we're kind and we have integrity and we serve, we go the extra mile and we live sacrificially and we pray for people and we offer to pray for them when we see a need and all of that most people will say yes most people will quietly be grateful and the data is 84% this was a a Barna research survey last year for the church 84% of people said if I was invited to go to church by my friend I would go but I've never been invited. And the number one uh, reason after growing up in a Christian home that people come to faith is that they come to a church on a Sunday morning and they realize that there's something going on that they want in on. 
And we tend to think, oh my goodness, the building, or you know, the guy who preaches, he goes on for too long, or sometimes the worship's a bit Christian, or like, Ugh. and we have all these reasons why we think people won't want to come to church. They don't, no one ever notices those things. When, they, when, when people come here, there'll be people here this morning, some of you aren't Christians, guarantee you, the conversation I have with them is never about the building, or the worship, or me, or any of that stuff. It's like, the way they felt welcomed, the way they felt loved, the peace they felt, there's a pause in their life, in other words, guys, let's stop making excuses. Please. Let's just start to get a bit bold. Let's take some responsibility for our field. Who's in your field? Do you pray? For your field and the big field. And then in faithfulness and obedience, because you've just asked the question, do you intentionally just build relationship with people? And trust that what's in you will flow out from you into them, because it does. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm feeling a bit vulnerable, because I haven't written any of this down, so goodness knows what I'll say tonight. Um, Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, says this. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. On the way in, I hope you got given a little piece of jigsaw. Did anyone get a bit of jigsaw? And is anyone thinking, what the heck? Um, anyone not got a bit of jigsaw? Okay, Ailsa's got the some at the back, so Ailsa's going to pass them around. I've got loads of spares here uh, for a reason. So on the, uh, earlier in this series, um, we talked about this idea that there's a big picture that we're all helping create, and each one of us is a bit of the jigsaw puzzle. The body of Christ, we're all one bit. And the invitation to you was, go all into this local church as a way of going all into the kingdom of God and being part of the picture. So we've given you this little piece of jigsaw from a thousand-piece jigsaw that Owen or there's a couple of hands up over there. Did you buy it or did Philippa buy it? And I can't remember what the picture was. The Colosseum, there you go. I think it was like 50p in a charity shop. And uh, I hope, because we've not got loads of money. And, um, and the idea is you put it in your coat pocket or your wallet or somewhere just to remind you that you're part of something bigger, okay? But actually what I want you to do is right now, taking the pens that are on your pews, is turn it over... Well, I've just lost a bit down the grate, so in a hundred years' time, someone will find that. Uh, I'd love you to turn it over, and I'd love you to write on the back the name of one person. And if you're not sure who it is, just pause for a moment, see who comes to mind first. Who doesn't know Jesus, write their name on it, and keep it with you. And every time you pick it up, I want you to... Remember that you're part of something, but to remember that there's loads of room for more people. This is not full this morning, this church. If everyone turned up at the same Sunday, it would be, but it's not. And there's loads more pieces here, and I'd love to get to the point where as a church, there's no pieces left because everyone's come and added themselves into the story. But you've got to invite them in. The kingdom is invitational. 
So if, you, um, if you're super keen, you can take more pieces, and you can write lots of names. Or if you've got really small handwriting, <laughs> you can write loads of names on the back, or put some initials in. But I want to um, challenge us as a church. Uh, I've really prayed about this, actually, and spent a bit of time wrestling with it. I am... Um, I want to I invite you, I want to challenge us. Can we all add one person? If we all added one person to the family this year, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, we don't really know quite how many people call All Saints their home. We're not very good at taking down numbers. But let's call it easily 250 adults. It's probably a bit more. Uh, if everybody added someone over the next 12 months to the family. That would make us a family of 500. That would mean we could start to think about greater momentum in terms of mission and all the stuff we're going to do. But it means 250 people being invited into this kingdom of God story. Here's what I know. It's that people... Um, it used to be people would say um, you had to believe and then you could belong and then you'd Sorry, but believe, and then you had to behave, and then you could belong in the church. Right, that's how it used to work. It was, no one ever explained it like that. It was never like intentional. No preacher worth listening to would ever say, you must first believe, then behave, and now you can belong. Actually, the way it works in the kingdom of God is the other way around. People belong first. Everyone is invited to be part of God's family. That's what they were created for. So we need to tell them. And then we need to say, you can come and be part of it. You don't need to believe anything that we believe. Just come. And there are loads of people in this church like that. It's wonderful. If that's you, you're so welcome. And then what happens then after a while is that people start to believe. And for most people, belief, faith is a journey. So some of us have these wham-bam revelation moments. But most people, faith is a journey. And it's a bit, we, we, we imagine it's linear like that. But actually, it's not. It's like, Yeah? Do you ever have days where you don't believe it? <laughs> it's not just me. That's all right. Uh, and then what happens later is that you behave differently. Because as you see something, you adjust your behavior towards it. So I want more people to know that they belong in the family of God. So I'm, I'm not asking you to convert someone. I'm not asking you to hit someone really hard with your Bible. I'm not asking you to drag someone against their will to an alpha course. I'm just saying, will you invite one person, at least one person, into our family? And that's whatever it looks like. Bring them on a Sunday, bring them to carol services, bring them to your dinner parties, bring them to your small group, whatever. We had someone there last night in the vicarage at the Come Dine With Me, not a Christian. She loved it. Because she wants to be part of something. Okay. I hope you hear me. I hope you hear my heart. I'm trying not to give us a hard time, but I'm trying to raise the bar on us. We're going to change gear now for the last few minutes because we want to give you the opportunity to respond to what we talked about last week in particular and the letter that went out earlier in the week with our financial update. Um, but more generally, give you this moment in time to say, actually, as a member of this church, I'm, I'm going to go all in with my time, 
with my money, with my talents, but actually into Jesus, into church, into mission, into evangelism. If you were around uh, last week, you'll know we talked a little bit about this, and I then sent out this letter. But to tell you, that this is the detailed stuff. Some of you need to know it more than others. Um, as it currently stands, um, we have a, a deficit budget of £56,000. That is um, a recurring deficit. In other words... If we don't change something, it'll be the same next year, £36,000, for various reasons we explained on the letter. And then a one-off shortfall of £20,000. So £56,000, that's quite a lot, right? It sounds like a lot. It's actually not. So um, I, I was sitting down earlier in the week, and I was thinking, OK, God, how do I pitch this? <laughs> right? uh, it was partly because on Monday night we had a leaders gathering. We'll come back to that in a moment. And I wrote these two words down on a post-it note. I've got Vicar Scrawl, as you can tell. Imagine if. Imagine if we all went all in to following Jesus, to being the church, to mission, to evangelism, and therefore with all that we have. Imagine if we did that. What would happen? It'd be extraordinary. And then imagine if we did all add one person to the family, and there was 500 of us working this thing out together. How amazing would that be? And imagine if our kids and teenagers, did you see how many youth walked out just now? Where have they all come from? Imagine if they all invited someone into the family. It'd be amazing. And then I started thinking, okay, so imagine if we went all in financially in this little moment in our story and just decided, yeah, we're going to make this work. Not just so we can clear a deficit and get on an even keel, but actually so that we can then press on into that which lies ahead. And if I'm honest with you, I, I wonder sometimes whether we, I should have had this conversation with us six months ago. But I kept saying to the church council, I just think the time to have this conversation is going to be the autumn. It was a prayerfully discerned thing, and I may have got it wrong. But who knows? Imagine if 50 people here in our church gave £250, and 50 people gave £100, and 50 people gave £50 as one-off gifts, which... It's entirely possible. We'd clear our shortfall, our one-off. And then imagine if five individuals who aren't currently giving, and we know that not all of you are committed financially yet, and we'd love you to want to do that. Imagine if five started giving 500 a month, which some people could. That would be £30,000 a year. And imagine if another 10 Individuals or couples started giving 250 a month. That would be another 30,000. And then imagine if 20 gave 100 and 20 gave 50, and my imagination went. And I realized if you total all of that up, that's a £96,000 a year increase from 55 giving units, which is roughly what we reckon uh, is there, potentially. We reckon about two-thirds of those who would say this is our church are committed to regular giving. And I don't know who that is, so you'll know, not me. And because the government, I mean, we might criticize them all with they like, but they're very good at giving us tax back. So if you are taxpayers, if everyone was a taxpayer, that would actually equal £120,000 a year. And then I start thinking, oh, so imagine if we had £120,000 a year, more. I'm like, now then. We could invest in key ministry areas that need investment, youth. They really need a youth worker. So many of them. And if you've got teenagers, they, they like hard work. So uh, wonderful, but they need some investment. 
What about our song worship life? What about caring more for our community? What about small groups? What about pastoral care? What about mission? We could invest in that. What about church planting? What about infrastructure? All these things that are valid demands on our finances. If we had more, imagine what we could do. So on Monday night, we uh, gathered all those who helped lead all saints together. Not everyone could come. And uh, we gave them all a copy of the form that you're about to get. In fact, if you want to start taking one and passing it around, that would be great. Don't start reading it yet. Um, We gave them all a copy of the form. Owen beautifully invited us as leaders uh, to go first because we believe here that leaders are those that go first. So we said to them, guys, wouldn't it be great if on Sunday morning Rich could stand up and say, we gathered as leaders and we've already made the pledge that you guys are about to be invited to make. And so um, here's their forms. And there's about 40 here. And I'm going to put them in my big blue truck because it's blue, like the logo. And I'm going to put it here because in a minute we're going to invite you to put yours in. And uh, something beautiful happened. There was this moment, and I, I thought it was just me, but lots of people said, no, no, it was me too. There was this moment in the room when, when leaders chose, your leaders chose to go first. And they pledged between them one-off gifts of £6,625 and an increased regular giving of £11,775 a year. That's your leaders going first. And what you need to know is that's just from 15 of them, individuals or couples, because uh, the others are still pondering and praying, but they've given us permission to go back and nag them. So of those that didn't quite necessarily have a figure yet, 12 have pledged to review their giving and make a one-off gift. One has pledged to make a one-off gift, and one has pledged to increase their giving. Isn't that amazing? That's 30 individuals or couples, those that lead the church with Kath and I. And so Right now, what I want to do is invite you to take a pen and pick up the form and quietly and prayerfully fill it in. And because I'm, I should have done this, I haven't got one to show you. Where, where have they got to? Are they at the back yet? Have they got to the back? Have you run out? Now, if you're here as a couple, you might need to give... Oh, here we go. Thank you. Can I just borrow yours just for a moment and you can have it back? Thanks, Christine. Um, there's a whole load of sections to it. We'd love you to fill in as much as you possibly can. There's no rush. have got lots of time. Um, but what we'd really love you to do is to do it prayerfully. And I'm hoping you've already been praying and you've come ready to respond. But if you haven't and you need some more time, at the very least, um, would you uh, tick the box which says, I would like to have a conversation about financial giving with the treasurer. And that means they will, the finance team will follow it up. But you'll see we're asking for your name, your email, so we can contact you. Uh, talk about your small group situation. So how are you going to invest your time serving on a team? What about your financial response? How do you want to use your gifts and talents? And then while we've got you, we've got some more questions we want you to ask. And then on the other section is paperwork that you need to fill in if you want to start giving financially. 
if you're not already doing that. Um, what's going to happen is that all of these forms are going to go in a box and go straight to the treasurer, who will deal with all the finance paperwork first before everything then comes back with that second half taken off and all the other bits taken into the office so that we can uh, process all of the other bits of response, like if you'd like information about small groups, etc. So, does that make sense? So let's just be still. Let's just quietly spend some time doing it. What I would say to you is this. It's faithfulness and obedience. I have no doubt that if all of us respond to the Spirit, that we won't be in a situation like we are at the moment financially, that we'll have more money than we know what to do with. We'll have to have a conversation about how we're going to spend it. I'm confident if we all respond that we'll have a long list of people waiting to get into new small groups that we're going to start. I'm confident that every team would have enough people on it so that they can do what they're trying to do in and for the church. So please just tick in faith. And then in a couple of moments, what we're going to do is we're going to have a final song and we're going to invite you to, during that song, to journey up to the front and put your form in to the pot along with the leaders who've gone before you. Is that all right?